Today's episode of The Eater Upsell is presented by MailChimp. 14 million people every single day use MailChimp to connect with their customers, market their products, and grow their e-commerce businesses, and you could be one of them. MailChimp. Send better email, sell more stuff. On today's episode of The Eater Upsell, Greg and I are talking with Evan Sung, a superstar food photographer whose work you've seen in the pages of the New York Times and Vogue and the most beautifully shot cookbooks that have landed on bookshelves in the last couple of years. It's going to be a really, really illuminating conversation. I learned a ton about food photography. I have no doubt you will, too. Stick around. Greg, have you ever been to Las Vegas? I have been to Las Vegas, Helen. I went once uh, as, as a lad and don't really remember very much of it. And I went once as an older lad in college and um, ate fat burgers and gambled away 40 bucks and then had nothing to do. If all you ate were fat burgers and all you spent was 40 bucks, odds are pretty good you have not been to the place that I am about to tell you about, which is blowing my mind. I am completely obsessed with this restaurant right now. Ask me what this restaurant is called. What is this fabulous Las Vegas restaurant called, Helen? Greg, it doesn't have a name. What? This is crazy. Okay, ready? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to lay the scene, right? Okay. The MGM Grand is a giant sprawling casino and hotel in Las Vegas. Mm-hmm. It's huge. And if you're a high roller in Vegas, you will often get like comped your hotel room or comped a suite or like some big upgrade. So the MGM Grand doesn't just give their high rollers suites on the top floor. They have a secret hotel within the hotel. Wow. It's called the mansion. Uh-huh. You can't get to it unless you're looking for it. And there is like tons of security. So you can't just like accidentally wander in. This sounds like a Aya Miyazaki movie or something like. No. So like, I mean, if you Google it, like if you go to the web page for this, like, you know, it's it's on the web page of MGM Grand, but like mm-hmm. you can't reserve a room. It literally says by invitation only. So the mansion only has 26 rooms, but okay. the rooms are not rooms. They're villas and they're like like 20,000 square foot villas. Mm -hmm. And there are a couple of restaurants in the mansion, including, and this is the way that most plebes get into this area, um, Joël Robuchon's restaurants are in uh the mansion area. Joël. Joël Robuchon. Like, you know, he has Joël Robuchon, he has Atelier by Joël Robuchon, like all these The most Michelin stars stars. of any chef, I believe. That's right. But there is also a restaurant, like a regular restaurant, in the mansion for the guests of the mansion. Mm -hmm. It doesn't have a name. And here's the part that ultra blows my mind. It doesn't have a menu. Whoa. They have a full kitchen and a full team of chefs and like a dining room. And you can just have anything you want. Anything? You just tell them what you want? Yeah. I mean, I have not personally experienced this. And, And also to be clear, like to stay in this area of this hotel, you have to be obscenely wealthy or at least be spending an obscene amount of money gambling. I I was reading about it earlier today. And the estimation is that like in order to be invited to stay at the mansion, you have to be like gambling approximately 500,000 to $1 million an hour. Oh my God. But people do that. That's why Vegas is cool and weird. That's why Vegas is Vegas. Yeah. But there's this entire like restaurant apparatus that exists that doesn't have a name and it doesn't have menus. And you're just like, oh, like I would really like roast chicken and mashed potatoes. And they make you roast chicken and mashed potatoes. Or in fact, far more often, um, because a lot of the high rollers in Vegas for the last few years have been Chinese, whether Mm -hmm. they're from China or they're from Macau or or from Vancouver. These are where the best Chinese cooks in possibly in the world oh, wow. are cooking mm-hmm. and i'm i'm obsessed with this restaurant wow the invitation only no name no menu restaurant that is only for billionaires in a secret hotel within a hotel in las vegas how is this not the coolest thing in the entire world well it probably is the best restaurant in the world and um no critic will ever visit it um and a uh you know the the menu concepts is wonderful for for one thing B, you're pretty much guaranteed to feel great when you're there because if you're there, that means you're also fantastically rich. Or like friends with a fantastically rich person. Hint, hint, if you can get us in there. If you're a fantastically rich person who would like to take us to this restaurant, please email. Please, no, for real, email us at upsolideater.com. Literally, all I want in life right now is to visit the mansion inside the MGM Grand in Vegas and experience this. It does sound like an ultimate dining conquest, you know. I mean, I, I, something I've learned is that, like, the world's 50 best restaurant, like that list, basically kind of exists for 
these ultra rich, you know, food nerds to be like, I've been to all of them or I've been to 48 of them, you know, and they just spend their lives just going around. What's appealing about this is that it, it it's not even like listed anywhere. It's not even ranked. But who knows? It's it not could... even mentioned on. I mean, if you go to the, the website for the mansion, like I was like I said, I've been obsessing over this. Mm-hmm. They li- they mention Joel Robuchon's restaurants, but they don't mention this. They say we have Asian and continental chefs who will be happy to make anything you want. Wow. But they don't imply that like this is just you can you can have anything like. And I think this is sort of a. I mean, I don't. I can't. I'm. I have lost my powers of speech. I am so blown away by this. Like this secret corridor of the extraordinarily wealthy of the world that they can just have a nameless restaurant. It sounds like we need to get you to this restaurant, Helen, by whatever means possible. <laughs> So today in the Eater Upsell Studios, we are joined by Evan Sung, a photographer who, you know, if you have been browsing the cookbook aisle at your favorite bookstore in the last 10 years, you've probably seen his work. You've definitely seen his work because you've definitely he's seen his work over 35 cookbooks. And in New York, if you've read the New York Times, um, the food section, specifically the reviews, you've probably seen some of his photography there. He's Evan's, all over. Evan's everywhere. <laughs> yeah, everywhere. your photos are everywhere. And now you're in the Eater Upsell Studio. It's yeah. very nice to be here. Thank you guys for having me. We're super excited to have you here. So food photographer, you know, Greg and I probably among our friends and family get a lot of like, oh, you guys have the coolest job because we do. But then we meet someone like you and we're like, oh, no, you have the coolest job. (laughs) Uh, I mean, it is a great job. I, I definitely feel like all of us are really lucky to be able to be able to work in this area and be, you know, exposed to the things that we are exposed to, the people that we get to meet. Um, but yeah, my job, uh, is rarely painful and it's, you know, I, I, am I love working. I love doing what I do and, uh, I never take it for granted. So tell us what being a food photographer means. Um, well, I guess, you know, just to start with the idea that I didn't exactly anticipate becoming a food photographer, let alone a photographer, but once I had made it into the photography world and started doing, uh, you know, just working uh, various jobs, eventually getting a restaurant review to shoot and then kind of enjoying that and running with that and uh, that sort of snowballing into, you know, getting hired by the Times as a freelancer and Obviously, that's a huge platform to both discover a lot about food and restaurants and uh, uh, as well as just to sort of get my name out there. And so from there, uh, it all just sort of built itself. I mean, I, I built it, but, uh, you know, it, it sort of uh, I didn't seek it out so much as it just kind of found me. I found it. And here we are. As you were getting into photography, were you naturally gravitating towards shooting food or did you have some other sort of interest? Again, it was not very conscious. Uh, it was something that I did because, uh, you know, I was, I had started a, a PhD program in comparative literature. I actually got my degree in psychology and then sort of turned towards literature and, uh, photography was something I discovered late on, um, you know, after college, actually a, a friend, a friend put a camera in my hand and, and, you know, showed me how it worked and I was kind of fascinated by it. And it was just a nice thing that we, my friend and his girlfriend, now wife and I would do together and, you know, just take photos, print in the dark room and, uh, you know, encourage that just as a, as a great sort of creative hobby. And then after a little while, I I decided I wasn't going to follow that uh, academic track and, uh, moved back to New York and started, uh, just shooting wherever I could. What kind of comparative literature? What, what literatures were you comparing? <laughs> <laughs> well, I was just fascinated by, you know, postmodernist theory and, uh, you know, Jacques Derrida and all these things that uh, now seem like worlds away. But uh, at the time, I just loved, you know, uh, that sort of pop culture deconstruction. And postmodernism has a lot to say about photography, though. Uh, yeah. I mean, yeah, the, definitely. the whole idea of the like, infinitely reproducible image and yep. the flattening of reality. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think in part that, you know, I feel like even my, my psychology background, you know, is very useful in doing what I do. And, uh, it all, you know, 
it's all these little pieces that add up to what you end up becoming. But, um, but yeah, so I, I just started, uh, when I left that program, I came back to New York and started, um, to just shoot wherever I could shoot to assist other photographers. Um, but I was really fascinated by portraits actually. And I, that's probably the psychology underpinning, um, just to, to un understand how people work and, uh, you know, what motivates them, what drives them. So I really started my, my quote unquote, project uh, when I started was photographing artists in their studios, which is a not a, an original project, but it, it is a endlessly, you know, uh, interesting and, and nourishing thing to, to do because I just was meeting all these people that I would find through Craigslist and, and they were at varying degrees of success and doing what they do. Either maybe they had a side job or maybe they were doing it full time. But for me, as someone who is pursuing photography and trying to figure out, okay, how do I make a living doing this? It was great to talk to these people and, and say, okay, well, that's one way to do it. Or here's another way, or here's another way, or here's someone who's really lucky to have made the transition and doing it full time. So it was, uh, it was, a, that was my passion at the time was really portraits, environmental portraits. So what makes a good portrait? Um, I mean, there are many different things and I, I love, uh, you know, like Chris Buck is an amazing portrait photographer. I love those people who can just sort of create an unusual scenario that reflects the personality of the person. Um, but I, I've never, I'm not exactly that kind of portrait photographer. And so I think I just try to create what feels to me like an honest sort of just direct representation of, of who the person is sort of the, you know, I, I like, in a way, it's fun to shoot people who don't like being photographed. It's also extremely painful sometimes, but uh, <laughs> but it is fun, that process of maybe disarming them a little bit and finding when their um, defenses drop a little bit and you sort of get a little peek or a little flash of, you know, who they are when they're not thinking too much about who they are. So yeah. how do you get to that point where you, I mean, it's very just hard. just sit and stare at them for a long time. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, do you have to... I'm sure your process has a million tiny details to it that are probably maybe only the, you know, but like, um, you know, do you have to spend a certain amount of time with somebody before you can get to that level or? I mean, yeah, ideally, I think, you know, sometimes you get lucky. I think that there's, you know, photography is a, an interesting mix of kind of luck and paying attention and setting things up so that you get lucky, you know, in, in the situation. So sometimes you walk into a place and I have to photograph someone and, and they are without really doing anything, just the picture is right there and you don't have to try very hard. Other times, you know, I, it's ideally you get a chance to chit chat with them and, um, kind of figure out what motivates them and what they're interested in. And, you know, people like to talk about the things that they're interested in usually. So once that starts to happen, their defenses break down a little bit and they're engaged. And, but I, I think I always feel the most comfortable, you know, photographing someone who I've had some time at least, you know, to spend with 15 minutes, 30 minutes, you know, uh, I think sometimes it's funny. I think sometimes the more you get to know people, at least maybe for me, sometimes then I kind of don't know how to take their picture anymore because I know them too well. There's but like a valley where it's kind like, of or yeah. a, a peak. I, I haven't guess, really like, thought about it too much, but yeah. You don't know them enough. And if you know them too much, it's yeah. hard. Yeah. There's a sweet spot. It's kind of like, yeah, maybe like a date or something, you know, where you sort of, your interest is at its peak and then the familiarity kind of takes over and which is always a great thing. But uh, there is something in that kind of discovery of who a person is that, that's fun. So what was your first restaurant review? I'm pretty sure that it was... The one that I remember the most, and it was definitely like among the first, uh, was Momofuku, the original Momofuku noodle bar and shooting some crawfish at, uh, at the noodle bar and meeting, you know, David Chang for the first time. And, you know, this was 2004, 2005. This and, was for the Times? Uh, this was for the New York Sun at the time. Oh, I remember that paper. Yeah. Yeah. They oh, had a man. great, I think politically they were a little not my cup of tea, but you know, the, the arts pages and the restaurant reviews I thought were, you know, great, uh, uniformly. And, and it was a well-designed paper and it's definitely a training ground for a lot of people who ended up at the times and at the journal and, uh, elsewhere. So, but no, yeah, I was like one restaurant in Park Slope. And then there was this story about these crawfish at, uh, at the noodle bar. 
and uh, and then it kind of took off from there. Uh, it was it was interesting, and again, it was just uh, I, I think it's it was an interesting time to come up when I started shooting for myself in 2004, 2005, because obviously the whole food scene changed at that time. The food media scene changed and Eater and Grub Street and all these things. So it's been, you know, I was just transitioning out of assisting at that point. And it just happened that I, you know, fell into this world at a time where it was really becoming a, a huge thing, you know, and it's kind of grown. I've grown with it and it's grown around me. And So shooting food is very different than shooting portraits. I don't know. I mean, I feel like maybe we could actually draw some some philosophical parallels, but <laughs> yes. like in the sense that it's still life, right? Like if you go into Momofuku and you're shooting a crawfish dish, yeah. it's a very different process than shooting a chef's portrait, right. for example. So did you have experience in that kind of, like, did you, did you have thoughts about what you, what a food photograph should be? So I was lucky enough, uh, after I had spent a few years assisting, I was lucky enough to go to Paris and live in Paris for a year and a half and work with a great photographer named Giacomo Bretzel. And he did sort of what I ended up doing for a long time, which was a mix of everything. You know, shooting for the times, you just get thrown assignments that range, you know, so I was doing the fashion week, the backstage fashion week stuff. I was doing portraits for real estate or for, you know, the style section. But with Giacomo, we would do is one day it might be a beauty story. Another day it might be a portrait of, you know, a designer. Another day it would be um, a food story. And we traveled a lot, went to Italy and uh, just ate and drank amazing things. He loved, you know, the finer things in life. And so we just had lots of adventures. And I think through that, you know, it became, I wasn't looking at him thinking, oh, I want to shoot food. Uh, I think I, I just appreciated the travel and the chance to do a variety of things. But then when I came back to the city and got assigned to shoot some restaurant reviews, I just realized that, that all those seeds had already been planted in my head. And uh, I just kind of had a, a, an instinct for, I think, what looked right. And then to me. And then it's just grown, you know, and it's, uh, it is so much about, for me, the, the big challenge has, has been about lighting for the most part, you know, and really trying to make, I like things that look natural and, um, you know, so it, to me that is appetizing, although, you know, I definitely shoot other things that aren't quote unquote natural looking and, but that's, and that's fun too. But, uh, um, yeah, I think the main challenge is for me to make it feel natural and inviting and delicious. Not always easy, especially in Manhattan restaurants. Those are these like dark little boxes right. sometimes. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I remember back then dreading the winter months because just the light would get so, so dim. And, uh, I walk into a restaurant, you know, they want to shoot before service and just kept hoping like, can I get in earlier? Can I get in earlier? Um, so yeah, that was definitely, um, I mean, continues to be a challenge. You know, it's, uh, it's funny when you go out, or see the work of LA photographers or, you know, even all you know, oh, the light there is yeah, like, it's yeah, like, it's shut incredible. up. You have it so well. <laughs> exactly. So easy to be a photographer. <laughs> exactly. Like any photographer, you know, I love good light. It feels good when there's like nice, you know, light filtering in and, uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's rare, not that rare, but I mean, it's not, you can't rely on finding great natural light in any given restaurant. So, and certainly not at any given time of day. So, um, so yeah, that, that is one of the challenges for sure is lighting and, you know, food lit poorly looks pretty awful. So you just have to be sensitive to that. But, um, you know, for me, I, I've been lucky enough to do a lot of books that have involved, you know, traveling or, or meeting someone that I wouldn't necessarily meet. And so for me, food photography is not the end in itself, but it's sort of this byproduct of getting to do this job, which, you know, for me is learning what motivates this chef or what is this foreign culture about. And, uh, to me, that's the most compelling thing. That's the thing that, that I'm always sort of looking around for is another chance to, to document some different culture, some different personality and, and really explore that for a while. That's why I like cookbooks is because they take a little longer as opposed to, you know, a restaurant review. I, I come in and I stick around for, couple hours and, and that's fun, but it, you don't really get to 
uh, dive a little deeper into what's going on in that place. So, What was the first cookbook? The first cookbook was, it's funny because I just ran into this person last night, uh, Lauren Dean, who's a uh, producer. Um, she was doing a, uh, a lifetime television show, Three Women Cooking uh, Recipes. It was called Cook Yourself Thin. <laughs> that was my first cookbook. So, uh, you know, it was, it was very exciting to do it. And it turned out to be like a really big bestseller on Amazon. It was, it was a, a very one for a long title. time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, it was a start and it was a great start. She was amazing. And I, I owe a lot to her that she trusted me to, you know, to do this project that I hadn't, uh, a kind of project I hadn't really done before. And, uh, you know, all things considered, I, I don't, I don't look back at that book too often. I have it on my shelf, but I haven't flipped it open in a while. Um, but, uh, it was definitely the, a defining experience. You know, I learned a lot. So the process of shooting a cookbook is, I imagine, vastly different from shooting food in a restaurant as it's being made by the kitchen and just sort of being sent out through the past. Like with a cookbook, you have your set of recipes. There are probably more than 100 of them. Mm -hmm. So what's your process for a cookbook? Like in a, in a perfect scenario, are you doing this in a studio? Or are you doing it in someone's home? Like, are you on the road? There are a couple different ways to do it. Um, and I've done, I guess, in my mind, I sort of categorize them a little differently. So one being, you know, these sort of travelogue projects, which, you know, have the travel aspect, uh, just sort of documenting things photojournalistically, but then also shooting recipes, you know, in uh, whether it be in a studio or at the chef's restaurant. Then I have, you know, chefy books, very chef-driven books, and, and those tend to be shot very often I find myself shooting them in restaurants, um, which isn't the easiest thing to do because uh, you have to respect the schedule and you know the, the, the timing of restaurants. But I understand why, because the chefs have their whole team, their whole mise en place there, so they can really push through a lot of food, get recipes done and presented, and it's comfortable for them, and uh, they have everything they need, and so I can make it work. You know, and I've, I, I'm lucky to work with people who understand that, that that's a necessary challenge sometimes, a necessary evil, and so we do it, and, and it's fine. And then there are other books that are maybe more along the lines of Cook Yourself Thin, you know, authors who, you know, ha have 100 recipes, and then I have my food stylist, prop stylist, um, assistants, and we go into the studio, and uh, we spend X number of days uh, preparing dishes and creating little scenes, you know. So you got a whole crew there. Yep. Yep. Um, same crew every cookbook Not the shoot? same. You know, I think it's like anything. You have uh, the people that you love to work with, and uh, sometimes they're available, sometimes they're not. So there's a little bit of a, a Mission Impossible aspect <laughs> to it. Um, but uh, they're definitely, you know, people that I I wouldn't be what I am, you know, without without their help on, on set. I think they're really crucial elements. Um, so Suzanne Lenzer is one food stylist that I love to work with a lot and she has her own books and, uh, um, and, uh, uh, Kira Corbin is a prop stylist that I love who recently moved out to Portland, but we still managed to work together. We just worked together in San Diego on, uh, Richard Blaze's cookbook. Um, so it's great, you know, she's very flexible and so we get to, to work together, you know, as often as possible. So the dynamic between the photographer and the various stylists is always really interesting to me. I've, I've noticed that in the last couple of years, the New York Times has started including prop and food stylist credits on their photos, and mm -hmm. they didn't always. And it's still, I think, very rare that that's the case. In, to in, acknowledge those contributors, yeah. yeah. And they bring so much to the table. Yeah. I yeah. mean, and it's interesting, like... If you look at most food magazines, it'll just say the photographer. I know the you know the big magazines definitely tuck those credits, um, if not on the title page, then certainly in the uh, in the what would that be the sort of index like in at the, the masthead back. or the contributor list or some um, credits. But um, but yeah, no, I think they're really they're really invaluable. I, you know, sometimes I don't rely on a food stylist as much because uh, if I am working on a chef book, then I don't particularly feel it's necessary, but if they want one, you know, they can, I can certainly conjure one up for them. But, uh, but usually I trust them, you know, that they, they, it's the food that they make all the time. They have a, a, a pretty set idea of what it's supposed to look like. And so I am interested in that more than sort of this altered, 
you know, perfected version of what it is that they're trying to make. I mean, it's perfect in its own way because it comes directly from them, their instinct. Um, but yeah, prop stylists, so food stylists, you know, can, are negotiable and, you know, I think they're great when I have them. I'm, I love to have them. Um, and they work super hard because it's not easy to cook, you know, 12, 13 dishes a day, something like that. Um, there's a lot of prep work that goes into it. Uh, but prop stylists, I think, are really amazing. Um, they, it's happened so often that I've done books with chefs and I floated the idea of a prop stylist and like, ah, what do we need a prop stylist for? We have tons of plates and, uh, certainly I haven't gotten into fights with them, but they, they definitely resist it. You know, some of them. And then we get on set, the prop stylist is there, they bring plates, surfaces, you know, linens, and within two hours, you know, the chef is like, oh my, this is amazing, I'm so glad that you're here, this, all this stuff looks so cool, my food looks great on this plate, on that plate, and they get really excited about it, and uh, that's, that's gratifying, you know, it's, it's really, um, and it, it, does, it does change the, the character of the, sh of the shoot for sure. The, it feels like the the style that has really been dominating in food imagery for the last, I don't know, five or six years has been this kind of like extremely naturalistic, vaguely deconstructed, like things that are dripping and things that are splattered and like the browning on the pan. And, yeah. and, and that shit does not happen naturally. <laughs> I mean, it does, but like it doesn't happen naturally beautifully unless right. a lot of people are very meticulously right. making sure. Yeah. I mean, there is a, it's, it's a tough uh, balance sometimes. And I definitely you know, struggle with it is that how to make something look natural. And sometimes it just has to happen naturally and, and, uh, or you can try to poke it around and make it look the way you imagine it should look. But in poking it around, it just starts to feel a little airless. I've, I keep thinking of this, this word airless. I, I, I think it's something, a quality that I really avoid. Um, and if I, if I see a shot that I've done and something in my head just makes me think, oh, that feels a little airless, like almost like it's shot in a studio or there's no like atmosphere to it, then, then I, I get really annoyed by that. I'm trying to minimize that. But I think the airless quality can also come from just over, you know, styling something. Or... In terms of cookbooks, did you have any sort of direct influences? Did you, you know, look back on certain books and say, if not necessarily the specific photographic style, but just the, the sort of the visual impact that it had? Yeah. Um, well, I think, so again, coming at this world from sort of a, a different angle and, and finding myself in it, I, I wasn't that well versed in sort of the history of cookbooks and um, certainly editorial food magazines. It wasn't uh, something that I, I was paying a lot of attention to. So I would say that I started doing my work and, uh, you know, doing what felt right and natural to me, going to these restaurants, et cetera. And then one day I picked up the Alinea cookbook and that like blew my mind. Uh, and I was just, suddenly it felt like this is what I, you know, I need to be doing this kind of stuff. And so I started asking around the, the chefs that I had met at that point that I knew. And that's how I, you know, started working with Paul Liebrandt. And uh, we sort of became friends through that and, and led to a book, um, his book, To the Bone. With Andrew Friedman, With right? Andrew Friedman, the great Andrew Friedman, yeah. And, uh, so that was, you know, that I always think of that book, the Alinea book as really something that knocked me onto a different path or a different way of thinking about food photography. And what, what was it about it that, you know, that it was just so, something. It was just so, I think, um, so, you know, I, I was just saying that I like things to look natural and real, but. Cause that book is the opposite. Yeah, it is. It is. It totally is. But it, there was something just so majestic and impressive about the presentation of, of the dishes and certainly just responding to, to Grant's, you know, genius and, and all of that. But just visually it was so, I mean, it's a giant format book. Uh, the pictures are beautiful. The food looks, you know, imposing and uh, architectural and, uh. And that was, I don't know, that we just felt, you know, you look at food and wine or gourmet at the time and, you know, you see a lot of natural, you know, food by the window, lit by window light, et cetera. And so it just felt like something new and different to me. And not that it was, you know, and then someone, people showed me the Michelle Bra book and, and that kind of, you know, on white, just kind of perfect floating food uh, was also something that really appealed to me. Um, and so... I don't know. I guess it's just a strange contradiction, but I like, I definitely like both, uh, 
both styles. It's fun to work with with chefs who really can present their vision in, in such a clear and, and architectural way. It's 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 fun to photograph that. Quick pause to take a break and check in with the presenters of this episode of the Eater Upsell, Mailchimp. Mailchimp has integrations from WordPress to Facebook, Shopify to Magento. Mailchimp integrates with the apps and web services you use every day. I'm assuming you all use all of these apps. Mailchimp, send better email, sell more stuff. And let's get back to Evan. So Evan, something, um, I, th- I feel like Helen and I have had this conversation maybe not on the on the Eater upsell, but something that we talk about in the Eater offices fairly frequently now, I feel like, is the popularity of these dishes, specifically in New York, where the point of them seems to be that mm. you take the photo of them right. and not right. eat them. Yeah. Like the big one I'm thinking of is this place called Black Tap has these milkshakes where I think the innovation is that they just put frosting on the side of the milkshake so they could stick shit on it. Right. And the story I heard was um, that this was actually created between the chef and their PR person. And it just blew up Instagram. People line up for it. And then also at this fair smorgasburg, they have a raindrop cake, which is a clear yeah. cake. And you don't you don't even know what it tastes like, but everybody the point sees is it just on documenting it is just documenting Greg, are, it. Are you asking me to explain Instagram? <laughs> well, no, I just, uh, you know, <laughs> as someone who's been uh, who's been a f- food photographer um, throughout the entire rise of this kind of social media. Mm-hmm. I'm just curious to hear if you have any thoughts on how it's trending. And, you know, do you think that people are making making food now for the point of photographing it more than they were? I mean, yeah, I have to think that that that's a consideration for any restaurant or chef these days for sure. But, you know, on some level, on some level, wasn't that always a consideration, you know, really to, to, to entice the diner with the eyes first. Um, but yeah, I mean, now, of course, it, it's such a valuable tool for any restaurant to really get, you know, a ton of, you know, like the, 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 the corn husk meringue at Cosme, you know, like, which is a great dessert and super beautiful. And I shot it and added it to the countless Instagram photos of the meringue out there. And, uh, it, it is, it's really, I, I feel like Instagram has taught people so much about photography, you know, and really, I don't know if it's, it's funny. It's a, is it being shaped by people or is it shaping people? But um, it is people learn how to take pictures because it's like a video game. You know, you get likes or you don't get likes and you're like, oh, I did that wrong or I should do it like this. I remember um, a few years ago, more than a few years ago, probably a decade ago, um, reading some interview with a like a professional headshot photographer. Mm-hmm. And he was saying that the rise of the selfie is destroying him because now everyone knows the tricks. Like they know that if you yeah. hold the phone slightly above your face or the camera, I guess in that case, like you'll, you'll you know, you'll look thinner, you'll have yeah. a more defined jawline. And he, in, in a kind of tongue in cheek way was like, you know, my whole job was that like, I knew these little tricks and now everybody knows them and they realize like that they could just, you know, cut out the middleman. Like right. they don't need me. And, and watching this happen with food photography through Instagram over the last couple of years has been fascinating. Like as people, start to understand the difference between like a 45 degree angle shot and Mm -hmm. a direct overhead shot and like how you create tension and flow on the page and like. Yeah, no, it's, it's, I think people have become just so visually sophisticated. And, uh, so in turn, I think, you know, chefs and, and PR people are very attuned to what's going to attract people's eyes and make them pull their phones out. And, uh, you know, I think it, and I mean, I know, you know, the P. Wells has written about it in, in certain reviews, you know, whether the food is just motivated by its appearance and not necessarily by its technique or flavor. But, um, but yeah, I think you can't, you can't escape it. You can't escape Instagram. It must be fed. <laughs> this is my whole hypothesis about the rise of toast uh-huh. is that, um, <laughs> is that toast is just prettier sandwiches. And like the reason toast has become cool is because it is so much more gratifying to post an Instagram of a sandwich without the top piece of bread. Right. You're not hiding the pretty part. Right. <laughs> like literally a hundred percent the rise of toast. Maybe like a little bit of it is like that it's slightly lower carb than a two piece of bread sandwich. But like the vast majority of toast, as far as I'm concerned, is like pure Instagram psychology. That's interesting. Also right. watermelon radishes. Yes. <laughs> Those are the ones that are usually thin and sort of yeah, bullseye-like right, kind the of. Beautiful sort of like magenta tie-dye. Or also right. chioga beets, yeah. right? Like mm-hmm. there's like, it's 
pure Instagram bait because mm-hmm. in the case of the radishes and the beets, like magenta is not a color you normally see in a food. Right. And so if you can add that or like an orchid, you know, like the <laughs> edible orchids that are yeah. suddenly everywhere, like hibiscus. I'm very cynical about this stuff. I just think well, everything maybe, is calculated. Maybe that's a thesis that needs to be explored <laughs> in so further depth. If you're looking back through your, you know, catalog there of cookbooks and reviews and, you know, anything else you've worked on, what are some of your like what's like your top three favorite photos? Do you have them? Um you know, I, I, I do have favorites, of course. I mean, if images that stick out in my head as being ones that I love and like, you know, one is the lock screen on my phone and um but they're just the images that stick in my head for some reason. They're not exactly, they're probably not my, my best or, or... Let's see your phone. <laughs> <laughs> it's actually not exactly food, but... Uh, I, I picture that I took is my lock screen on my phone. I feel like this is... It's something totally, that I like to look at. Yeah, it's just what makes you happy. Uh, so it was from... Oh, that's beautiful. Yeah, it was from the Mark Forgione cookbook shoot. And uh, we, had, we were just went into his kitchen. We were just looking around the kitchen and he has this gorgeous flat top. And so we actually disassembled it and brought it out into the dining room and, and lay it on the floor so that we could shoot some stuff on it. And uh, I just ended up photographing it by itself. And it just, it's so like, it's kind of like Rothko-esque. Yeah, it's very textural. Um, and yeah. Is that something, is that something a pan or a pot would go on? Is yep. that like a burner? Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. It's and, very uh, cool. Yeah. I really... I was oh, really, beautiful. really hoping that that would be the cover of the book. I thought it would make a great book yeah. cover. Yeah, that would be very badass. It looks yeah. like a door to something, you know? Yeah, yeah. It's it's funny because he, you know, it's uh, it's the one piece of equipment he said that he's had since the restaurant opened, and hmm. uh, it's just taken a, a beating, and it it shows it, but it still works, and uh, it's the durability, it's the blank canvas, it is the kind of like the chef there. Yeah, yeah. That's so cool. that's one of them for sure. Uh, What's another one? There's an image from the Senegal book uh, of a, a bunch of hands, you know, sitting people sitting on the floor, reaching into a plate of uh, chibujen, the the national dish, seafood and and grain, and uh, that is just a favorite image because it was something that I was just photographing in the back of one of these kitchens, and they it was time for family meal, and so this big plate of fish and rice came out, and they placed it on the floor, sat down and gestured to me to come and sit and, you know, have family meal with them. And uh, of course I had to photograph it first, <laughs> uh, but then I sat down. And so that, that moment was always so meaningful to me. It was really fun. They were, they were fun. Um, and, uh, so that image always sticks in my head as, as a, a favorite, the whole, that whole experience was just incredible. And, uh, it's a, a really amazing place. I just had dinner with chef Pierre Tiam yesterday and, uh, the author of the book, the right? author yeah. of Senegal. And, uh, and he's great. He, he is the best ambassador for that country, Senegal. It's really, the cookbook is, is remarkable on a lot of levels. I wrote a, a little review of it for Eater last year when it came out and it is, you know, Senegal as a country and Senegalese food as a cuisine are so directly in dialogue with the food of the American yeah. South. And like Sean Brock talked about that a little bit in Heritage, his cookbook, and he talks about it in a lot of his cooking. And and I f- really, you know, the there is this trope in the world of cookbooks, I think, where like these travelogy cookbooks, whether it's Senegal or it's Thailand or it's Russia or whatever it might be, they often sort of skew towards a very like exoticizing visual mm-hmm. and kind of say to like, you know, the American reader, like, look at how like festive and vibrant native life mm-hmm. is in this country. And one of the things that I loved about the Senegal book was that it didn't go down that path. It felt very like, this is like, these are human people cooking food in their homes and you should cook it in your home because it's just really freaking great food. Yeah. Yeah. You yeah. Know, it, it, it accomplished a very delicate balancing act. Well, good. I mean, I'm glad to hear that. You know, I, I did, it is, I guess, it can be tricky to not fall into that trap, you know, and to sort of over romanticize or over exoticize the thing that you're seeing, even though it was all so new to me and so exciting. Um, but, you know, Chef Tiam told me that uh, one of his cousins in Senegal had, you know, seen the book and just said that it really felt like home to, to them. And that was a great compliment. You know, it, I, I, I wanted to reflect what I was seeing and, um, and I felt very at home there in, in a weird way um, and very comfortable because, I mean, I'm surely because I was traveling with, with Pierre, but also because they're very warm people and, and the country is just beautiful. So I felt kind of in place. I didn't feel totally outside of it. 
And so hopefully that that's what's being communicated in, in those photos. Um, yeah. What kind of research and prep goes into a shoot like that? Um, you know what, uh, like that was very, that was very much me following Pierre and Pierre knows that country so well and, you know, grew up born there, grew up there, returns often. Um, and, uh, so it was really just trusting him and, and trusting what we were trying to, to say about, about the recipes of Senegal and about the country. So I can't say that there was a ton of planning per se. Um, <laughs> it was really just dropping in there and then kind of running around like crazy and, and shooting anything that moved. And, uh, it was, it was fun. It was very instinctive and, uh, we just had so many cool experiences. It was, uh, I remember like, you know, we were shooting these fishermen in this little fishing village and, you know, they go out early and they have, they get back early and they have all day to, to just hang out on the beach. And, um, they just kind of hang out and chat and drink tea. And, and we were there with them and people started wrestling, you know, do they, they train physically by, um, wrestling on the beach with each other and wrestling is a huge, you know, national sport in Senegal. And, uh, it was these like really hulking muscular guys, uh, just throwing each other on the beach and doing drills. And, and just as a lark, you know, I was like, Oh, I want to wrestle these guys and was promptly slammed into the sand, uh, <laughs> <laughs> very kindly, but still got really go for it. Yeah. Huh? When you're on one of these assignments, <laughs> but that's the kind of stuff that, you know, I just love, you know, the food's great. It, it's all part of it. You have to eat generally two or three times a day. So you're bound to run into it. But for me, it's those experiences of like, well, these are the people who are catching that fish that you're going to eat later. What do they do with their day? How do they spend their time? And, uh, that to me was really fun. And then to sort of participate in that way was, was cool. It all connects back to that undergrad psychology degree. <laughs> exactly. Okay. But I want to hear one more. What's one more photo? Oh, I don't one think more we got photo. the three. Have yeah. you ever shot a chef with a dead picker on their shoulders? <laughs> <laughs> I have not yet done that. That's oh, on the bucket really? on the bucket list. I thought you had to do that to like uh, to get know, my credentials. To get your the film for your camera or whatever. <laughs> uh not yet. I haven't I haven't done a lot of dead animal on chef shoulders yet. The first time I saw it, I thought it was so cool. Oh, it was so cool. And then like the fifth time I saw it, I was like, all right, I get it. You're holding a pig. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, if I, not another photo, then what's another project you just, that stands out in your mind is something that yeah, you so, really. Well, I was going to say that one of the mm -hmm. photos, but really it's so hard to pick, but you know, the, the Paul Ebrant book for me was also another just big landmark. You know, it was, it was a project that was born really out of this uh, friendship and this collaboration that we started because precisely because I wanted to do more work like the work I had seen in the Alinea book. And it was something that we were just doing as creative exchange. You know, it wasn't intended to promote the restaurant or anything like that. It was just the stuff that he wanted to create. And then I would go in and light it the way I wanted to light it. And uh, he started doing that once every couple, you know, months or something like that. And then he sold a book and then, you know, some of that stuff went into the book and then we just really started in earnest and shot, uh, all the other recipes. And so that was for me. So I can't even pick a photo out of that book. I just feel like that whole experience is, you know, one of my proudest accomplishments and led to a great friendship with Paul and with Andrew and, uh, Andrew Friedman, the co-author. So, um, yeah, I think two photos and a book. How's that? Yeah, that's, that's great. If you see Paulie Brandt next next time you see Paulie Brandt, you gotta tell him to open another restaurant. I, I will do that. I like I was I love that restaurant, the <laughs> Elm, and I was crushed when it closed. And you have a uh, look of such like ecstasy. On your it face was right so now. cool because it was close <laughs> to my house in my apartment, and I just couldn't believe that it had opened there. You know, yeah. and yeah. like a restaurant that good was so close to your house. Yeah, that good. I mean, not to get off on the tangent here, but that good and the kind of place where you could have a really extravagant kind of meal, but you could also just go in at 930 and get a burger kind of a thing. A place yeah. like that just opened by my house, which is also by your house. And I actually, of course, aggressively stalk your Instagram and uh -huh. know that you've been there lately. Olmstead. Yes. In Prospect Heights. I was going like, to say, I was going to say in response to your, yeah. your Elm, I was going to raise you in Olmstead. Yeah. Yeah. Oh <laughs> man, I got to go there. It's really good. And it's just, it's so nice to have a place that's like not too fancy, but just like special. Yeah. Sometimes you want to celebrate you know, have a celebratory th meal in your neighborhood 
at the drop of a hat. Cause what if somebody in your life gets a job promotion or something, you know, something <laughs> yeah. like that. And you, you don't know? want to go more than four That's blocks important. from home. Yeah. yeah. You've yeah. got to have something. Yeah. I was <laughs> devastated by, cause I, I feel like my neighborhood is a little bit bereft of great food options. Like on my side of the uh, Flatbush Avenue. Uh huh. Not not a ton. Franny's, of course, is always it's, great. It's always getting better. Yeah. Our, our neighborhood's coming up. Oh, but your side, I think <laughs> there's a lot more going yeah, on. You should move over um, by me. Yeah, yeah. Just cross that. <laughs> but I was devastated by the loss of Barchuco. Oh, that my was, God. Helen was, was a, devastated by the I loss. I was devastated. Right? Oh, I was, d- like, utterly destroyed. Yeah. And it... They're, they're lovely people, uh, and we had such good times there, and it was... Again, close and uh, just reliable, always reliably delicious and uh, really creative, I think. So it's uh, it's too bad. Yeah. It's a tough business, obviously. R.I.P. <laughs> That's actually a very good segue into our lightning round. Uh-oh. Which we close every episode of The Upsell with and on which one of the questions frequently is, if you could resuscitate any restaurant from the dead for one last meal, <laughs> what would it be? Oh, gosh. And Cor- it doesn't have to be Barchuco, but like if, it, if it's Barchuco, you could say Yeah, that. no, it would be Corton. I mean, I, I, that's where I met Paul and, and I never had the pleasure of eating at his earlier restaurants, but yeah, Corton was a, a very meaningful place. I spent a lot of time in the front of house and the back of house. And so it's, uh, I mean, I know I, I've been to Batard since, and, uh, it's a funny experience to be in there. That's a great restaurant too, but uh, very, very different, different restaurant. Yeah. yeah. Very different. Our next lightning round question. Um, it, these are not actually like quick, easy lighting answers, but, um, <sighs> What what advice would you give to someone who wants to break into the world of being a professional food photographer? Um, yeah, that is not a lightning answer. <laughs> it's uh, very slow moving lightning. Yeah, <laughs> so, thunderstorm clouds rolling in very slowly. Um, you know, I think I don't know. In, in a way, it's so much. I wouldn't even know. You know what to do now. I mean, in, in the sense that I feel like it's so easy. It's so ubiquitous that. Um, you just have to be out there and obviously making connections and, uh, you know, every, every chef wants to be, find someone who understands their food and them and, and reflects it in a, in the way that they want to see it. That's actually always one of the questions that I ask, uh, when I work on these chef books is like at the end, you know, does this book feel like you, you know, and you just want to sort of get a sense of, does that reflect what they think of their own story uh, on the inside? So, you know, make connections and uh, build up those relationships. And, um, you know, I, I, I think you used to have to assist and, and go through that whole um, experience. And I don't, you know, I think you still have to do it in some ways, you know, if you want to get into commercial photography, etc. But I think that there are a lot of people out there who are doing it, who got their start blogging or, you know, um, just shooting casually and then it, and then it snowballed. So, um, I think it's just a matter of, of being present and persistent. And I think definitely, you know, that idea of, oh, I met you five years ago and you're still here doing it is a big thing, you know, just because there's so many people who sort of transiently come into it and then maybe kind of get out of it. And, uh, that sense of like, oh, you're still thriving and doing it. Um, just being persistent about it. Uh, is a big, a big thing. And be good at it. <laughs> and be good and at just it. Be, <laughs> and be a great photographer. I don't know if that's what you're right place, to say. The right time. Like, no. I feel like I read in your pause, like, and don't and, suck at photos. Yeah. <laughs> and have some skill, have some talent. Right. Well, I was going to say, don't be a jerk, I guess. <laughs> oh, I guess yeah. I hear from different. a lot of people like, oh, Evan, you're so easy to work with. I'm like, what are other people doing that make it so hard? Like, it's a pretty fun job. It's pretty not easy, but it's, you know, it's, it's pretty pleasurable. So I don't know. So lightning round question number three. Okay. You're at an airport and you have an hour to kill. What do you do? Oh, uh, the super nerdy answer is that I go to the Delta lounge and just hang out there and have a beer. That's not nerdy. Um, well, yeah, except I think a lot about Delta lounges. I'm like locked into Delta. Like, do you look forward to them when you know you have to Mm. kind, kind of, you know, there's like a lounge uh, at JFK that has like a little sky deck and you're like breathing in jet fumes, but mm-hmm. it's still kind of nice to be outside. Um, you can be outside drinking a beer at the Delta Lounge. Yeah. I remember yeah. when it opened, they they were like advertising. They were like, this is like the only 
outdoor space in an airplane lounge yeah. ever. Yeah. And now that this is why do I even know these facts? Now the JetBlue terminal at JFK also has outdoor space yep. and they have a sign outside of it that says the only outdoor space. <laughs> and, and I'm like, no, man, like the Delta terminal has had this. Right. And I actually asked someone at JetBlue about this. I was like, you are factually incorrect about <laughs> the privacy of your outdoor space. And they clarified to me that the Delta one is not available to everyone. So the JetBlue uh, one is the first public. And I was just I like, see. man. That's such a JetBlue piece yeah. of JetBlue corporate culture there. <laughs> Splitting hairs, guys. I can't explain why. It just is. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, I think yeah, an hour to kill. I try not to have too much time to kill at the airport. But uh, that or what else would you do there? That's really, I don't know what else you do there. Go to Shake Shack and grab a burger? I don't know. That's pretty good. Yeah. Another um, lightning round question. Okay, you have a car trip. It's a five-hour car trip. You're gunning down the highway, and you're by yourself, and you're singing along <laughs> to something on the radio or the iPod. What is it? Uh, my wife knows that it would probably be a Rihanna song of some sort. Or Really? Yeah. Wow, you don't look like the Rihanna I know, type. I know. It's that, just... Uh, I totally thought you were going to go for some, like, really, <laughs> like, obscure yet very cool, like, late 90s indie band. Yeah, I'm not cool enough for that kind of obscure... You seem very cool. Old, well, thank you. But, uh, yeah, I don't know. There's something about it that's just kind of... Windows down and it's music's blaring. It's Rihanna fun. banger. Blasting, yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, she's freaking great. She's Rihanna. Yeah. yeah. I just learned that Rihanna is like one of the top selling artists of all time now. She's like, it's like, you know. That makes me very Pink, happy. Pink Floyd. Uh, Elvis. And Elvis Rihanna. and Rihanna or something like that. Yeah, seriously. I love it. That's great. Yeah. She's classic. Mm -hmm. no. In 20 years, she will be considered like classic rock. Yeah, <laughs> classic. You're like, oh man, Dad, why are you listening to Rihanna again? This you don't understand, music. Junior. <laughs> um, I have like a weird weakness for sort of disposable pop. I'm not that encyclopedic in my knowledge of it, but you know, pop songs work for a reason. They just kind of Rihanna's songs are very like. There's always a lot going on in them, melodically <laughs> and conceptually. I find I like I like a lot of them, you know. Yeah. But there's a reason they do well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. they're oh. nicely they're engineered. Awesome. Well, Evan, it has been such a pleasure oh, having you on this episode. Are yeah. oh, we gonna send it? We can just sit here and chill. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but um, oh yeah. Well, before we sign off, um, tell our listeners where they can check out your beautiful photography. Oh, uh, they can go to my website, which is uh, www.evansung.com. And then uh, my Instagram, which is really the only social media that I, I kind of enjoy. Uh, so that's Evansung NYC. Evansung, coolest food photographer ever, probably. Yes. Yeah. All right. Yeah. You guys are too kind. Thanks for coming by. Been fun. Yeah, thanks for stopping by. Thank you. Today's episode of The Eater Upsell was presented by MailChimp, which has been around since 2011 and is the world's leading email marketing platform. More than a billion emails a day go through the service. It democratizes technology for small businesses, creating innovative products that empower its customers to grow. MailChimp, send better email, sell more stuff. The Eater Upsell is recorded in the Vox Media Studios in New York and Los Angeles. Your hosts are me, Helen Rosner, and that other guy over there, Greg Morbido. Our producers are Maureen Giannone and Patrick Balder. Our editor and associate producer is Daniel Janine. Our associate editorial producer is Kendra Vaculin. Our studio ops team is Alex Ulreich and Miles Yule. Our editor-in-chief and fearless leader is Amanda Clute. And the most important person involved in the creation of this entire crazy rodeo is you, dear listener. You. Thank you for being exactly who you are.